we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're gonna show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. Happy to be back in the studio, bringing you guys another great episode. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Good. Good. How do you feel after lunch? I heard you made a new invention for lunch today. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Can you tell us all about it? Marcus made... You already said something about that? I didn't say that. No, no. It's, it, it went around very fast. Oh, I sent it to the sisters, and you were with And I was Gabby. with the sisters. Yeah. yeah. So... Oh, that's all right. Yeah, sisters did a whole thing. It's all good. It's all... That's it. Okay. Yeah. So, Marcus... I, that's why I love them, and that's why they're my... And then there's those parts where I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Marcus, um, we had... Uh, well, my sister had Mexican food last night, and so we had some leftover queso, and he was just eating an avocado. He cut it in half, took the pit out, and he poured the queso into the avocado and put the chips on top. Like, created, we called it the quesado. Is that right? Uh, case, yeah, case, quesado. Quesado. Yeah, like queso avocado. So, yeah, it was quesado. really neat. Yeah, it was something cooler than that. Real well yeah. off the tongue yeah. I, I, if I saw it, pl- I played it out a little differently in my mind, uh, what I was going with, but apparently it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. I heard about it. All right. All right, I got a Patreon question for you guys. If you were left on a deserted island with either your worst enemy or no one, which one would you choose and why? Mm. I would choose my worst enemy so I could kill them. Gosh. And live she went off straight for the blood. <laughs> Brutal. It's not me. You got to worry about. I know everyone thinks that whatever you've heard about my story, whatever kind of, I'm not the mean one here. <laughs> I would is, definitely just Im- immediately eliminate and then live off of those resources. All right. Is it my turn? Yeah, go for it, bro. Right. I'd rather have my worst enemy on there because if you. If, 
life has taught me that if there was just two of us left down here, you wouldn't have a worst enemy. That you have to get along. And I, I've been in the places when it was just me and somebody else who I was supposed to be killing, and then we turned out to be really close. Because you can get so much more done when you you realize how how infantile killing is when when there's no one left but just you and everyone else I've killed, and and, and you're looking at the last one. All right. Well, you're dropping straight like super logic <laughs> and from experience. That's not fair. That was a question. All right. Colin, how about you, man? You know, I think I might go solo. I might go solo. Look, uh, you know, I love, I'm a very social person, big family. I got five older sisters. So uh, I, I know what it's like to be around a lot of people. But um, as I'm sure we'll talk about on this podcast, I spent 54 days alone walking across Antarctica, pulling a 375 pound sled. And um, although I like being around people, there's there's something beautiful about solitude. You can really you can really tap tap deep in. So I wouldn't have to worry about this uh, worst enemy. Although Marcus, I relate to you in the sense that I think we all oftentimes have more commonalities and, and things we can get along with, uh, even when we think it's our worst enemy. Yeah. So there's something to be said for that for sure. No, when you're alone too, doing when you're trekking like that, I, I get that. That's a proving ground too. I always just yeah. like to come back to something. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like for sure. You, I mean, yeah. if it was the only place you're ever going to be ever again, I mean, it would be nice to have someone else yeah, there and you can work a, out your differences. Yeah, and I, <laughs> an anchor. It's like an anchor. I mean, if you know there's something to go back to, it doesn't matter how far you go out. Right. I mean, I, it's, it feels like that to me. And it was like that when I was in, too. No matter how far. I was on one of those long reconnaissance teams. They would just hang us way out there. But you knew no no matter how far it was, they were. we, we had an anchor in the back that would just pull right. us right back. All right, I'm not changing my answer. Go ahead. <laughs> I felt somewhere in the middle between those because I said the There's same not, thing. It didn't I, say that in the damn question. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, I had both answers. I had Melanie's answer and Marcus's answer. I told Hunter He's earlier. Guy, oh, he says he cheats off both papers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, both. That's how I got through college, okay? Um, I think that I would probably choose my worst enemy because there's not anybody that I dislike that much, so I could probably figure it out. Also, we're on an island. Like, they could have a part, I could have a part, and then when we need to pull resources together, we could. And then me and Hunter were joking about the fact that if it really was somebody that I absolutely hated and things got sideways, I could kill the person. Like, I mean, we could. So it's like I'd like to have the resource there for helpful reasons. Well, I mean, have the choice, but if you, you want to learn? change a choice, you can, you can make, That's make right. a decision. I can, I, can, I can just terminate the threat. <laughs> and if you rotate them at a certain <laughs> time, you'd I... never run into each other and you'd always have a good vantage point. And then you have somebody like supposed to be making it better. Yeah, that's my thing. Is like yin and yang. If I have my enemy and I... It's just not going well. Then I just eliminate. <laughs> I, I I get that part for sure. But at least I have that choice. Hunter, how about you, man? You know, I was thinking about that as well. Uh, we saved you for last. You're supposed to be learning out there. All the stuff you just heard. <laughs> formulate. We need you to formulate the a good answer, answer and get back to us. Usually, I, I would probably prefer prefer to have that extra person on the island just so you can pull resources, just like what we were talking about. But if things go do side uh, go sideways what if they get you whenever you're sleeping i mean there's always that chance that they they could also get you so there sleep is. with one eye open exactly but yeah there's always true story. there's always a chance so. i know it. i've seen it i've done it i've seen it, done it. Come in <laughs> at night on christmas <laughs> we've done it oh man what a great patreon question uh, even though we have just you know differing opinions here i think yeah. that uh it's all right, right. it's why it's we okay. work together as a team that's right hey guys check us out patreon.com slash team never quit that's right they're all good answers no answers about, well sometimes 
Patreon.com slash Team Never Quit. You can get some exclusive access to great content. We've got some incredible custom swag, some challenge coins, a bunch of fun stuff happening over there. So make sure you check that out. Patreon.com slash Team Never Quit. Now let's get to our guest. We've got a great guest in store for you guys. Colin O'Brady is an American professional endurance athlete, motivational speaker, and adventurer. He is a former professional triathlete representing the United States on the ITU Triathlon World Cup circuit, racing in 25 countries on six continents from 2009 to 2015. And in 2018, he became the first person in history to cross the continent of Antarctica, solo, unsupported, and completely human-powered. Colin, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be here with all of you. So impressive. And besides all of that intro, you've got some other stories that are what we would consider never quit stories, like your your beach story. I'm sure you're going to share. I hope you do. Um, so you had quite the journey to get to this to this interview today. I want to take it back, though, because I'm, I'm just a people person, and I like to know the root of who you are. Can you tell us where you grew up? You already said you have five sisters, so we know you're from a big family, but give us a little bit about your your roots. Yeah. So, uh, somewhat of an untraditional background. I was, uh, I was born in Olympia, Washington, um, on a, on a hippie commune actually. Um, oh. so <laughs> I was born, uh, with, uh, at a so you're from Olympus, is that what you're saying? And you can do all this. I can catch it. I, I get, the, I, uh, Okay. <laughs> very, very uh, kind of not traditional way to come into the world. I was born at home. Uh, my, there were 30 people there hanging out, celebrating a baby being born. Oh <laughs> and, my gosh. Uh, you know, it wasn't a hospital. So uh, it was a, di- a different kind of way. I don't remember it, but it sounded like it was one hell of a party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got my attention now, man. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I I grew up most of my life in uh, in the Pacific Northwest, Olympia, where I was, where I was born, but then uh, in Portland, Oregon uh, for most of my childhood. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up with a lot of money as a kid, you know, my family and my parents were super young when they had me and, you know, they worked hard, but, you know, from a lower income family, but I think the the through line for me was, was big dreams. You know, I, I definitely had parents who really, um, you know, loved me and supported me unconditionally and would always kind of ask me like, you know, you can do anything you set your mind to, you know, really kind of a lot of positive reinforcement throughout my life. And I think that that's certainly been a huge impact in, in where I've ended up here, you know, with 10 world records and all these adventures around the world and things like that. But I think it's powerful, right? Like when, when we don't know exactly how we're going to get where we're going, but still a belief um, in being able to sort of create your own reality over time. How do you explain um, that? How, back that up, because that's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it, it may be an easy answer, but that's a hard question. And I say it like that because when we, like when you're standing in front of somebody and, or the kids at a young age or when you have kids, I mean, that's, that's that dad knowledge you're kind of looking for from a kid. But, yeah. And there's always that, I think that the, um, the unknown, there's a feeling that goes with that that is terrifying. That usually keeps most people locked down. How'd you reverse, yeah. how'd you reverse that? You know, I think that, I think that fear uh, is prevalent within all of us. I think at, at some level, I mean, some of us have figured out how to deal with fear in different ways. Certainly you have and what you've uh, done throughout your life and your career. Um, but it can be, as you said, it can be paralyzing, right? It can be the thing that stops you before you even start. Um, you know, you, uh, I, Andrew, had that. I think I, I had, I, I mean, I was born little bitty kind of uh, everything beat me up and no matter what, what it was, if I wasn't, if I was unsure, about, including with people, like if someone barked right. real loud at me or something, I had my head down. I, I just, I, that was a thing. Yeah. To learn how to get around that fear, man, I, I had to, well, my buddies taught me how to do it. 
And it's just like the people around me were always positive reinforcements. I don't really, I didn't really have anybody telling me that I was a piece of sh- crap and all that. And I hear people saying that a lot, but I, I, I never hung around them. I always right. tried to get away from them. Well, I mean, I'm a big believer that we're the net product of the, you know, five or 10 people we spend the most time around. And, you know, I, I joke, I'm like, you know, hang around four millionaires, you're likely to be the fifth. Hang around four criminals, you're likely to be the fifth. You know, it goes with mindset to hang around five people that are you know, putting you down all the time. You're going to start putting yourself down versus hang around five people that are, you know, constantly dreaming big, daring to dream greatly. I mean, I think that we are very influenced. I know I am by, you know, who, who we surround ourselves with. And, you know, you can't always oh, make yeah. those choices, right? You're born into whatever family you're going to be born into. But as you kind of grow throughout adolescence and adulthood, you do get to make some of those choices of what, who you cultivate community. And of course, you know, I'm in the phase of starting my own family now. And as you think about, you know, having your own kids, starting a family, you obviously get to make those choices of how, you know, you want to have that, that impact. How far um, along are you with your family? We, uh, we're, we're in that baby making phase right yeah. now. So, uh, I, no I'm babies yet. Practice makes perfect. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's different. It's, right. it's, it's almost going to take all those skill sets and remove the titles from them and, and go into, a, like I always call it like the James Bond mode or the Jason Bourne mode. It's like, man, you have all those skill sets in your toolbox. So whenever it is that, that kid presents itself or with the wife and the kid, present that as, a, as like your puzzle piece or, or your obstacle. And I, man, I, I took, that's how I had to teach myself. I want to get back to the growing up and you having these positive reinforcement and everything. Was anyone in your family athletic in pushing that mode? Not really. I mean, um, you know, not unathletic. I mean, my dad like played some high school sports and stuff like that. I think big influence for me was my dad was an Eagle Scout. So mm-hmm. my dad was an Eagle Scout, spent a lot of time in the outdoors. And so growing up in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, it, it's a city, but you're surrounded by beautiful wilderness kind of in every single direction. You can drive 15, 20 minutes in any direction. You're, you know, at a, at a trailhead or a mountain or, you know, Alpine Lake or something like that. And so my dad, like I said, we didn't have a lot of money, but my dad used to always say, he's like, look, the outdoors are free. So we weren't going on like <laughs> extravagant vacations or anything like that. We just take the family minivan, drive out to a trailhead um, and go in the outdoors. And so, you know, as I, as I look back on, you know, how did I end up summoning Everest two times and being in Antarctica four times and all different various, you know, expeditions I've had on every single continent of the world. I definitely started out by just having a curiosity for adventure and exploration, you know, in my own backyard, so to speak, uh, with my, with my family. Um, absolutely. Okay. So they were always there pushing you then too. It was almost like a family adventure as opposed to you going off by yourself. Totally. Yeah. I mean, now the stuff I've done on my own is obviously uh, a a step further, but yeah, it was, it was always about being around family. It was always about family, having fun. And I think that that's, I think in anything, I believe that whatever lights us up, right? Like whatever, like makes us happy, whatever brings us deep fulfillment and deep joy, like my expeditions, I mean, I'm out in Antarctica 54 days solo alone. I'm starving. I'm beat up. It's hard. It's challenging. But at the root of all of that, I have positive memories and fulfillment around adventure in the outdoors, right? Like those, those experiences actually imprinted on me as being positive. So even during my difficult times, I always have this memory of like, oh, right. Like, but this is where I, I gain fulfillment. And you take that to a micro level. We're talking about childhood here. It's like, you know, I think of, uh, 
you know, camping with my dad, I remember like being like a 10 year old kid and getting soaked in the rain, like camping in the rain sucks. I don't care who you are. Like camping in the rain is like kind of a bummer. Like it just is like snow is better than rain, like wet, cold, like whatever. And I remember like in those moments it being like terrible, but then like a year later, we were still talking about that. Oh, remember when we got caught out in that crazy store or whatever. Yeah, that's I, I like what to happens. Call, that's how you know. Yeah, totally. And so I think that you know, that pushes you and you grow from it. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, uh, have you guys heard of the fun scale, like type one fun, type two fun? Are you familiar with this? I'm no, not. Down for okay. Yeah. Okay. So type one fun is like just fun. We think about, right? Like whatever makes, whatever makes us happy, you know, hanging out with your family, laughing, watching a great movie, uh, whatever, whatever you like dancing, you know, whatever, just fun. Right. Then, you know, drinking a cocktail on a beach somewhere, watching the sunset. Uh, but type two fun is it's not fun when it's happening. It kind of sucks when it's happening. But like a week later, you're at the bar with your buddies and you're like, oh, that was epic, man. Yeah, like yeah. we had that good experience. Sounds like, like you. So good. <laughs> I didn't know right? they had scaled it. But yeah, yeah I'm following you. Yeah, yeah. I'm going right. more with now, you. Now type three fun is not fun when it's happening. And it's also not fun afterwards. Like you don't want to talk about it afterwards. It's like, just, it sucked when it was happening. It sucked afterwards. So to me, the sweet spot, what I love, of course I love type one fun. It's easy, whatever, but type two fun is that gratifying fun. It's like I said, like the, the kid, you know, in the rain and then afterwards, like, Oh, I, that made me stronger. I'm kind of tough. I, you know, that was an epic experience to have with my dad or my siblings or whatever that is. Um, and so I think that sort of embracing of that type two fun has certainly led me to a lot of the difficulties and the challenges yeah. and ultimately what you guys oh, yeah, stand man. for in the I'm team a never 23 quit. myself. <laughs> There's probably a level four on that where not only do we not talk about it and it was a bad time, we don't even think about it. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> very deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. When we bring that up, it triggers another one. I feel like you're definitely a type two person. I said 23. Oh, I'm, the I'm two like, and the three. Yeah, 23. Yeah. 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 together, man. I, I'll roll into both of them. I was always taught you, if you take a bad time, keep going until you make it badass. Keep going, right? Same exact. And, uh, uh, if your crew's sure. with you, it, it makes it better. And, and yeah, I think what you get one or two, you get two people together. They can talk themselves in or out of anything. You put that third one in there, and something's going down. Mm -hmm. It's like, <laughs> hey, you see that? And then there'll be that one guy who's like, I bet you can't do that. And then they'll be like, oh, let's see. I want to hold this. I'll get it done. It's, and you know what I'm talking about, man. When you get those threes running like that, it's hilarious. That's when progress starts happening. Or you can demolish it. But Absolutely. For, for sure, man. I, I want to talk about Everest, but Antarctica, too. I, I mean, you, you said it earlier. So I, it's a progression. That's what happened to me. It's like, well, I did the same camping in the rain with my dad. It rained so bad the tents collapsed. We had got we got moved into the horse trailers, and I I remember it was cold, and I remember how what that felt like and the and the smell of the wet the hay and everything like that. And as bad as it was, it was a type two. Yeah, uh, that I'll never forget that. But then the next camping trip, somebody was with me, and it was a good trip. But they were bitching about something. I was like, man, last time it was a freaking <laughs> hurricane through here. Yeah, yeah. You know exactly. I mean? like bragging rights, and you're like, and then. The younger generation, like, oh, it yeah, it calibrates. You're like, oh, oh, you're a badass. Watch this. I'll outdo you. Because I, and not trying to outdo you, I'll just suffer more than you. And that's what happens, I think, with guys like us, man, because it changes, it perpetuates itself, especially if you got some boys that are going to roll with you, man. Totally. Yeah, totally. Crazy. No, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, uh, real briefly about sort of the, the speech in Thailand and also my childhood. I think it's a, it's a, it's a story that, 
I think kind of personifies a lot of what we're talking about was my transition from childhood into adulthood. It's a really sort of impactful moment in my life. Um, so after, just after graduating from college, um, I had saved up a few, you know, a few thousand dollars painting houses every summer. Um, I was like, I want to see a little bit of the world because I never had been abroad. I'd never seen any other parts of the world. And so I had this in my mind. That's the adventure that I wanted to have. So I painted houses every summer, saved up a few thousand dollars. When I graduated, bought myself a one-way plane ticket to travel around the world a little bit, um, which was a great experience. You know, I was hitchhiking, you know, sleeping on floors and youth hostels, just a few dollars in my pocket, have a few beers at the end of the night, kind of, you know, living as cheap as I possibly could. Um, and I found myself on this beach in rural Thailand. <clears throat> And uh, 22 years old at the time, saw a couple of guys, they were jumping a flaming jump rope. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. And because, you know, I'm 22 years old and didn't th- see any fear in that. Why you know, not? Not a, fully for- <laughs> yeah. not a fully formed prefrontal cortex there. I, great uh, idea. That seems like a great like, idea. What could possibly go wrong? This looks great. Um, so I jumped the flaming jump rope. Um, and in an instant, my life changed. You know, I tripped myself. The rope wrapped around my legs. There was excess kerosene on the rope that splattered my entire body, lit me on fire to my neck. Oh, my um, gosh. And, you know, thankfully, survival mode sort of kicked in. I needed it most. And I jumped into the ocean to extinguish the flames. But not before about 25% of my body was severely burned, predominantly my legs and feet. Um, and... I was in the middle of nowhere in Thailand. I was on an island outside in the middle of the Gulf of Thailand, no proper medical facility. I had a dirt ride, uh, student moped ride down a dirt path that was in this one room nursing station, um, had these like makeshift ICU that I had eight surgeries in back to back days. And there was a cat running around my bed and across my chest in this ICU. I mean, just basically all time worst place you want to be in a circumstance like this. Thankfully, my mother did come find me on the fifth day. She tracked me down in the middle of nowhere in Thailand and ended up spending the next couple of months sitting by my bedside until I was stable enough to move back to the United States. And I'll say, you know, in talking about childhood and sort of these fundamental, you know, shifting moments, left up to my own devices, man, like I was just negative spiraling. The doctors walked in one day and said to me, hey, look, Colin, like you'll probably never walk again normally. And I've been an athlete. I've been very much in my body. So my identity was in that. And it's kind of been an instant, like you made a stupid mistake and you're never going to be the same. And I believe them. You know, I was like, man, and just like the pain was bad, but the emotional trauma is this downward spiral. Well, my mother, she shows up on the fifth day and I know now that she was actually crying in the hallways of the hospital, pleading for good news with these doctors, but she never showed me that fear. She didn't come into my hospital room feeling sorry for herself or crying. She came into my hospital room every single day with this huge smile on her face, actually, and this air of positivity, kind of daring me to dream about the future. And just saying things like, your life's not over. Yeah, you screwed up, but like, what do you want to do when you get out of here? It could be anything. Let's set a goal. And she eventually kind of walked me through this visualization. She said, close your eyes and picture yourself doing anything, whatever you want. Um, And 
I now call this mentality that she helped me shift into, I call it a possible mindset. I write about it in my new book, The 12 Hour Walk. I, I call it the possible mindset, which I define as an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. So I was in my mind, as you said, full of that fear, full of that doubt, full of that anxiety, the things that hold us back. My mom was like, yo, set aside that fear, set aside that negativity. What do you want to do? And I said, I closed my eyes and I said, oh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I just saw myself uh, racing a triathlon one day, you know, swimming, biking and running. And she could have easily looked at me and said, yeah, I said, set a goal, but like, look at those legs. And the doctor said, you're never going to walk properly again. Like, yeah, set a different goal. But instead she was like, actually, great. That's your goal. In fact, let's start on it right now. Let's literally start on it right now. And she yells over to the doctor. She goes, Hey doc, doc, my son's training for a triathlon. I need you to bring him in some weights. And so I have these pictures of me in a Thai hospital, bandaged from the waist down, being told I would never walk again with dumbbells in my hands like this, looking at the Thai doctor going, hey, man, I'm training for a triathlon. He's looking at me like this stupid American kid's never going to walk in that normally. <laughs> but it was just fixed in my mind. And so the end of that story really is, is that eventually I was released from that hospital. I was carried on and off that plane. I was placed in a wheelchair when I got home to Portland, Oregon. Um, there was a long road to recovery of literally taking my first steps again, learning how to walk, but that goal was fixed in my mind. And 18 months after I had been burned in this fire, I had got myself into a place to be able to compete in a triathlon. I was living in Chicago at the time, signed up for the Chicago triathlon, raced the race. Um, and to my complete and utter surprise, I didn't just finish the race, which was my goal, but I actually won the entire race, placing first out of nearly 5,000 participants oh my gosh, um, on the day. Awesome. Tell you what, the, go ahead. Was your mom there? She, my grandmother was there. Unfortunately, my mom couldn't be there that day. Um, okay. My grandmother was there, my maternal <laughs> grandmother. Yeah. Bro, um, that hey, is, that's, a, that's, that's that awesome. mom. Hey, I've had my ass whipped back to my mom too. <laughs> right? Same amount right? of days. I call it, it's called the mom set. Mom reset. And the reason totally. they're so good at that is because when we first come into this world and we can't do nothing, they're the ones that motivate us to, to hey, you're going to be able to walk, even though when I, you, can't, you can't even understand language. They don't have any other mindset. That's why when some of us get whipped so bad, back to them for a mom reset, yeah, I, I've been there. And that, you have a kick-ass scar? You do, don't you? Is it like tiger-striped? I, I have some scars, honestly, uh, considering how bad it was. You look at these, some of these pictures, I mean, no skin on my bottom half of my legs. Like it's, it's not as bad as you might think it is, but of course I've, I've got some scars. Cause so, we so, collect so scars in this family. I All just right? want to yeah. take a time. Hunter is 24 and he went to Thailand when he was 22 back here. Hunter, <laughs> thank you for not putting me through that. I really appreciate No flaming jump ropes for you, pal. He did Thailand by himself at 22, and I was texting him all day long. I'm sure he sees some uh, some flaming jump ropes or some other crazy stuff over there. Because, man, it's... uh, I I can hold the best. Some some other kickboxer movies when I'm listening to right now. You know what I'm talking about? Like, working out in the hospital. That's awesome. That's a great story, by the way. but But the, you know, the essence of that is exactly what you're saying, which is, like, I think that we... Look, my mom was such a positive influence on me throughout my entire life strong, full, fill me up with positivity, et cetera. But like, this is a moment where you're getting, you know, truly tested by the world, like your own mistakes. Right. And then the, the expert, these doctors saying, Hey, you're never going to walk again normally. And like, yeah, sure. I won the triathlon and led to this, you know, very successful athletic career. But to me, that's not the point of the story. To me, the point is, is not just me, all of us as humans, right. I believe we have these reservoirs of untapped potential to achieve extraordinary things, but it starts with the mind. And I and me left up to my own devices, like to use your words, without that mom reset, 
I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys. This was 15 years ago. I wouldn't be sitting here with 10 world records. I wouldn't have done that. Like I would have actually fallen into this negativity in my own mind, but because I had that support system, I, I learned this lesson. And I think I learned one of life's most important lessons. And what's beautiful about this, going back to that type two fun, or this is close to type three fun, I suppose. Hey, that's in this great, case, by the way. Great scale, by the way. Is that, is that basically... You talked about that recalibration. Like now I'm out pulling my sled across Antarctica. I'm climbing Mount Everest. I'm setting other big goals, whatever. And like, yeah, is it hard? Yes. Am I scared? Yes. Am I hungry? Is my body beat up, et cetera? A hundred percent. But my mind can go back to being like, yeah, but I've been on fire before. Yeah. I've had no skin on the lower half of my body before. This isn't that bad. I can push harder. My body can handle more. My mind is stronger than these are not my limits. And so finding those edges sometimes, even in the moment, how horrible it is, recovering from that, proving yourself, you can be stronger on the other side, I think has a, you know, insurmountable impact on the other side of that. So is that what you're doing? Checking your edges? I think that's a big part of it for sure. That's good stuff, bro. I never heard it put that way, but I, that's squared away. I, I, I get that. Cause there's a couple of ass whippings where I had to stay down. And I think a lot of people don't think that's okay. I'm like, that, that's how you know it was a good ride. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Bro, if I woke up in the hospital, man, and they were standing on me with those masks in there, I was like, hey, it must have been awesome. Right? And, I mean, for whatever reason, that's a fuel. We switch it. And I, 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 maybe it's our first time near death when she shows up. You know, when you, you I mean, she has an odor, you can smell her, you know, mm -hmm. she's real. And I, um, I, I went, that changes kind of everything. And then as you embark on it, it turns into one of those deals. All right, well, if I'm the one that's supposed to see how far we can go with this and let's just keep going because then mm -hmm. people, well, they'll tell you, they, they resonate with you. You start helping people just by living your actions. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, you're not trying to prove anything to anybody. That's not the point. I, I completely understand when you say that. Now, there was a point probably when I didn't get it. Honestly, there was. But I think you turn it around. And it's like, man, I got to keep going just because the, I, the way I love to live my life helps people. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that there's been parts of my life where sure as a younger man, I might a little bit of ego crept in there or external validation or, you know, pats on the back, you know, making you feel good. But I think that when you move through that, certainly from my own speaking, from my own experience, you transcend that, you know, that fuel only burns for so long, right. you know, the, yeah. the deeper fuel is living in integrity with yourself. And as you said, like, I think the gift that we all can give each other as humans is when we live in integrity with ourselves, when we live our best lives and we're lit up um, in the world, it resonates with other people. I mean, I know from, from, from your stories, you know, inspired so many people, you know, I'm humbled by the fact that my social media feed is filled with people, you know, saying like, Oh, wow, you did this. Now I'm inspired to do this with my life. I started that business. I took on that goal. I pushed myself beyond, you know, my limits and because of witnessing the way you're living your life. And I think that as humans, we have this immense ability to have this ripple effect of positivity, um, between each other as oh. we, as we live in our truth. The best is to see when, when somebody outside your realm applies what you do. Totally. And I, I didn't even, I, I, that didn't even bump into my head ever. I was like, wait a minute, man, you shouldn't even understand that I existed. I mean, you probably hear about me, but whatever. Telling me that, uh, you know, I kind of impacted you or you, you took this away from what I did and turned it into that. It's pretty amazing how it works. If you think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so pretty when amazing. You, when you won your first triathlon that was your goal when you were in the hospital to run this triathlon and all you wanted to do is complete it you actually won it is that what inspired you to do more or do you think you would have 
quit and not done anymore if you wouldn't have won it? Yeah, you know, there was an interesting set of circumstances there. One, like I said, just the lesson, the lesson of just the completion of it, Mm -hmm. you know, gave me this uh, renewed strength of realizing, you know, you can have setbacks, you can have think bads happens, but you can continue to push through that and make that a positive outcome. But certainly it also conspired me winning conspired in, you know, there was a guy, uh, a mentor, a longtime mentor now in my life. Um, but he ultimately said to me, he heard the story and he said like, this is incredible. And I had a childhood dream of making the Olympics. I was a swimmer in college and then triathlon, um, you know, I won this race and he was like, you know, at the time I actually had a, a really good job. You know, like I said, it was a, a good job for a young kid starting his career. I was working in finance, I had an economics degree. Um, it was like, you're putting that to use and you know, he said to me, he's like, well, what are you going to do about this? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I, of course my, my childhood dream was to be a professional athlete, but like, you know, I got, you know, bills to pay a job, you know, a career in front of me. And he was like, well, what if I came on board as your first sponsor? Um, and that was all I needed to hear. He, it wasn't like being in the NBA or the NFL. He didn't give me a big, huge check. I was going to make way less money than I was making at my job, but he gave me an on-ramp to actually continue to pursue sport at this level. And so I literally, you know, <laughs> there's certain people in my life that criticized me at the time, but I walked in on Monday and I, and I quit my job. And I think that that was from a, a heart center place as we were talking about before of just, that was my truth, my truth, nothing against the career or the life I was building, but this, I could tell, I was like, wow, this is, I'm lit up. I have this aliveness inside of me and I have the ability to continue to pursue that and to continue to push these efforts. Like this, this new learning for me in this, in this moment as a young man, I was like, wow, if I can do this, what more am I capable of? And so I got the opportunity to, you know, race triathlon professionally for the next six or seven years all over the world for the U S national team. And that ultimately, um, you know, has continued on the last five or six years into these, you know, massive adventures and world records, um, in the, in the adventure space. So it's been iterative from there, uh, for sure. So you think people at that, I mean, at 19, 20, he's talking about a career, there are no careers in 19 and 20. <laughs> I mean, but you know, I'm talking about, yeah. but, but there's, there, there's people out there that get wrapped into that. They're like, Hey, totally. I can't leave this. I had to, I had to do this. And it's like, well, no, no, this is kind of occupying you before you got to this. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And I think that that's look, and again, I, I say this not to knock anyone else's choices. Um, but just my own path from speaking from my own experience, I think it's pretty easy for all of us, right? We, we start to form our identity in young adulthood and they go, okay, great. You've got this economics degree and you got your first job in this field or whatever. And so often it's crazy how that one decision when you're 22 years old for so many people, somebody wakes up, they're 65 years old and they're still on that path. Oh yeah. Maybe, you know, like just, just because of like, you know, the way the wind blowed you in one way. And so, I mean, look, I, uh, I, I write it, the, the opening story. Um, I'll, I'll tell this story, the opening story in my, uh, my newest book, the 12 hour walk. So I was, uh, I do a lot of, you know, public speaking and whatnot. Um, and I know you do as well. And I was invited for a, a dinner before the speech. So I was doing a speech in New York city for a bunch of wall street guys, you know, 500, you know, wall street executives or something like that. And they invite me to this, uh, pre-dinner with like eight, eight people of kind of like, you know, high profile CEOs and whatnot. And <laughs> you might appreciate this. I showed up to this fancy Manhattan office building and I'm wearing a black t-shirt and jeans and, and Michael Jordan sneakers. And the doorman's looking at me going like, uh, you can't come up here. You're oh, not yeah. on the list. He actually, yeah, yeah. he actually says to me, he goes, he goes, if you're with catering, uh, you need to use the <laughs> service. Oh my gosh. 
That's and awesome. I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was supposed to be here. That's <laughs> like, awesome. Whatever. So, <laughs> anyways, not not my typical crowd, so to speak. Um, okay, hey, I got but, hit uh, like that too. I got, I got yeah. hit just like that. Yeah, Marcus <laughs> has ta- he's sleeved up with it, tattoos. Different, it's a different world. No one had trained me to be in there. It's like, uh, <laughs> right? I, I, that happened to me. Different well. uniform. Different right? uniform you know, altogether. Like Armani suit and the hundred thousand. One hundred percent different uniform. Well done. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, you know, I go up into this dinner, um, and uh, you know, once I actually get into this, you know, big penthouse apartment, everyone's friendly to me because they're expecting me, of course. But it's just funny getting there, and I and sit down for dinner with them and you know they're excited to hear me you know give a speech tomorrow you know and they're they're all talking about you know these are these are like these guys are in their 70s you know 60s and 70s you know older guys very very wealthy um you know some are billionaires you know and they're you know they're talking about macroeconomic policy and you know stock market and you know whatever that is and then it kind of turns to me and they start asking me about some of my expeditions um and they start asking me you know like you know, did you see any dead bodies when you, when you were climbing Everest or, you know, what was it like to be in that, you know, I did this rowing project where I rowed a boat from the Southern tip of South America um, to Antarctica, you know, the first person to ever make that crossing, you know, 40 foot swells, icebergs, you know, they're asking me questions, they're engaged, you know, we're having this dialogue. And at one point, you know, I love asking people this question. I've asked it, you know, to elementary school kids at the top executives in the world, whatever. But I say, I'm like, you know, my childhood dream was to climb Mount Everest. Um, but I don't expect that to be everyone else's childhood dream. I was like, what's your Everest? Like, what was your Everest? And it's usually kind of a fun conversation starter that people start tapping into like, oh, I always dreamed about doing this or yeah, I, I actually reached that goal in my life. And here's these guys who are, you know, from the external standpoint, the epitome of success, right? Like these guys are, you know, quote unquote, the most successful, you know, guys in the world. And the room goes silent when I ask that question, completely silent. You know, kind of like, do I have something in my teeth? Did I say the wrong thing? You know, whatever. Yeah. And just silent. And then, you know how when you said some kind of awkward moment happens at a dinner party, like somebody says something yeah, else, and the conversation the moves on, <laughs> um, you know, it just yeah. moved on. Like the conversation moved on. And I was like, kind of like, oh, that was weird. Like whatever. And just try to, you know, get through the rest of dinner. So I'm getting up to leave and I'm going to the elevator. It's one of these fancy Manhattan apartments. Wait, that like was it? Elevator- no, no, wait, yeah, wait, wait, wait. they like moved Where'd on that? from the conversation. <laughs> just, they just they just moved on fully. I'm about to get in the elevator. It's like in it's inside of the the apartment. So the elevator actually comes directly into the apartment. It's not like a hallway. Um, and uh, I, I go and pushing the button. The elevator. Oh, you're in one like, of those real upper class places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like exactly like this. Oh, <laughs> you know okay, Roger about. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about now. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. And so uh, I'm you know about to go down the elevator, and a guy comes up and he grabs me on the shoulder. A guy from the dinner, and he says. Hey, Colin, you mind if I talk to you for a few minutes before you take off? And I said, yeah, sure. And this guy was, you know, hadn't said a lot at dinner. He was actually maybe the oldest guy there. If I had to guess 75, 80 years old. And, uh, he goes, I want to apologize, um, to, for, for me and my friends back there. You got, you asked an important question and we didn't say anything. And I said, oh, it's all right. You know, what, you know, no worries. And he's like, no, no, no. He goes, I can't stop thinking about it. And he goes, I have more money than you could ever dream possible, but there's not a day that goes by that I don't think what would my life have turned out if I hadn't asked myself, if I had actually had the gumption to ask myself that question. Aww. And he actually like got emotional. He's kind of, you know, wet eyed a little bit. And it's an interesting moment for me. And there's a reason that I opened my, my new book with that story is it's not to knock these guys' financial success. It's not to knock anyone's path, but it's to say, if you're not on the path that you're meant to be on, 
then you're not living in integrity with yourself. And too often, like I said, you make one decision when you're 22 years old, you take that first job out of college and you wake up and you're 65 years old, you know, 20, 40 years later, and you go, wait, how did I get here? Being able to recalibrate at some point, like you got to do the hard work. There's not, I'm not saying it should all just be easy, fun times. I just want to like hang out and party and whatever I'm saying, but that essence of your sort of choices, that question, what's your Everest? You might not be on that mountaintop immediately, but reorienting and checking in with yourself throughout your life to say, am I still living my values? And that's not about making it, you know, could be making a million dollars. It could be saving a million lives. It could be having the best family possible. It could be starting that business. Like it could be anything. It doesn't matter what the answer is your question to the question, but it's you having the ability to actually ask that. And to me, it was such a stark contrast of the person who our society holds up as the most, most, most successful because they've made the most, most, most money actually having a vulnerable moment with me and saying, I'm 80 years old and I've missed it. I missed it. I missed the opportunity sure. actually. They needed your mom. Yeah. I was like, hey, mom. Your mom's saying, the one that asked you that question in the hospital. Like, out, what is your right. goal? Go out and make a million memories and save a dollar from each. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and that's, that. like, that's, that's kind of how you do it. If you're out there doing that, you, then you're living. Then, then you're really living. You'll know if you're not. I mean, I, that's just the way it is. And, and the best part about having people around you is they're examples of how, how well you can live in, in any kind of environment. All right, so my brother and I have these bets as we go along in our life. One had to be paid at 40, one has to be paid at 50. If he wins at 50, we have to climb Everest. Oh, my gosh. Okay, okay. When am I, when was I This is not... uh, This is when, about when we were okay. born. You weren't even around. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. What's the bet? First, we're going to talk about Everest, but why, what's uh, the bet? What are the stakes, you know? Okay, so the first one was which twin had the least amount of money in his bank account when we hit the age? It's just, it was tacked to be successful. <laughs> Right. It was a challenge to be successful. It was a challenge to be successful. And, okay. um, That's healthy. I like it. We got all kinds like that. And, and each one, I mean, we pay up. So when I hit 40, I, I got the, uh, it was like whatever, whoever won the bet got a car, whatever car he wanted. And I, I got the one I wanted. The, nice. the, 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 the Mustang. Mm-hmm. From Eleanor. Gone, yeah, from Gone in 60 Seconds. Her name's Melanie. <laughs> well, the Eleanor is what it looked yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So but my, the, the next bet's at 50. And if my brother wins it, then we have to, uh, we got to climb Everest. You're damn near there. What's the bet? I, I'm Wait, sorry, was it that Shelby Mustang from Gone in 60 Seconds? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it oh, looks wow. like that. It's not yeah. the actual car. But, um, yeah, yeah. so on Everest, when you're going up there, yeah. everyone, there's the training, everyone talks about the overview and the underview, and this is what I would have done. What's that one part you're like, I know at some point when you're on the middle of that mountain, you're like, damn it. There's that part, right? You're like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've climbed Everest. I've climbed Everest twice. Most recently, I uh, had the good fortune of climbing it with my wife, actually, uh, which is a whole whole other story. Because she was not necessarily she's not like a hardcore mountaineer adventurer, but she said. And you drug her to the top of Everest. Well done. Top of Everest. Yeah, good job, brother. Um, That's a hell of a woman. Yeah. I mean, did you just said she's not a mountaineer and she followed you to the top of the earth? (laughs) Where's she at? Put her in here, bro. Did you hear what that that man just said? You know, actually, most people that woman followed your ass to the top of the earth. (laughs) Most people interview me for a little while and they quickly realize that they're interviewing (laughs) the wrong person. Um, (laughs) uh, No, she and, and, and the way I bring that up is that it was. 
you know, it's one thing to see Everest through the lens of me as a professional athlete. My first time there, I was trying to set this world record for something called the Explorers Grand Slam. So I was trying to set a speed oh, yeah. record for climbing yeah, the yeah. tallest mountain on each of the seven continent and going to North and South Pole, Everest being one of them. I successfully did that world record 139 days consecutively, all those mountains. But I was on Everest kind of in that mode. <laughs> And then coming back five years later. Freaking loser. We got on. You're so <laughs> such an overachiever. We're like, we're in awe. Uh, <laughs> not even that I mean, everything's everything on the back. beach and stuff like that. When you get in the mountains, that's a different area over there. Yeah. I'm not one of them dudes. He's not a mountain person. I'm not a mountain person at all. Sorry, they make go movies ahead. about we me all, getting my ass kicked on the mountains. Yeah. Um, but going back with my wife, um, I'll tell you what. There's, there's, so on Mount Everest, there's base camp and then there's four camps above the sub or before the summit so it's such a tall mountain that even if you're using supplemental oxygen but certainly if you're not you need to go to each of the higher camps sleep get your body acclimatized and get your body used to it so if i took you any of us even myself i took us from sea level and i dropped this off on a plane or hell you could never do this but if you hypothetically you could take a helicopter and drop you off on the summit of everest you'd pass out in two minutes and oh die. yeah because your body is not used to the the thin the thin air um, up there, obviously, and so the way that you get that is is you probably many people are aware you got to slowly climb up, get your body more acclimatized as you go higher. The final camp before the summit is Camp Four, and so that's at twenty six thousand feet. Everest is twenty nine thousand feet. And 26,000 feet is also known in the world of mountaineering as the death zone because they even with supplemental oxygen, even if your body is acclimatized, the human body cannot survive above 26,000 feet for more than a day or two tops. And so once you go up to that camp four and you're thinking about preparing for your summit, it's not like you got a week to kind of think about it, let the weather be good. Like you're already on a ticking time bomb. You're technically dying when you're up there, hence why it's called the death zone. And I had had you know, I am aware of that. Um, obviously having climbed these mountains before and what some people tell you before you climb an Everest is they say to you above the death zone, there's pretty much nothing you can do to help or rescue somebody else. Meaning your body is so compromised that you can't like pick somebody up and rescue them in that environment. And look, like I'm a fit, you know, guy, I'm a professional athlete. I was kind of like, yeah, I understand that that's how it is for most people. But my, you know, my first oh, time I get up there, exactly my, where you're going with that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My ego got the better of me. And you're like, yeah, I mean, I, I hear that, that it's probably difficult or hard to perform a rescue up here, but in the mountains, there's a morality, there's an ethic that if a climber is, is, you know, falling down on the ground, like you're going to do, you're going to stop your climb and do everything you can to help, help that person climb or help the person get down alive. Right. So I'm coming off the summit of Everest in 2016, my first time on the summit. Uh, that's my, like I said, my childhood dream. I achieved my childhood dream, but most people will tell you that you can't really celebrate just on the top of mountains because 80% of climbing accidents actually happen on the descent um, because you let your guard down. You know, it's that the mission is not complete yet. Um, you know, you can take some pictures and do some high fives on the summit, but it's when you're back in base camp that you can really celebrate. So I'm coming back down the mountain, just about a hundred feet from the summit. There's a little, little notch that's called the South summit. It's like this little, like there's basically like a three foot by three foot square of rock and ice. And it's dropping off five, 10,000 feet on either side, just like dramatic drop-offs, um, very, uh, intense high stakes place. And there's a woman lying on the ground at my feet when I get there. And I look at her and I quickly realize I actually know her. I recognize her. Her eyes are kind of rolled back in her head, her head's head's back. And I see her 
And I realized this is a woman that I had met um, previously in base camp and on another mountain. Uh, we weren't climbing together, but you know, we, we're acquaintances. And I was like, oh my God, it's Tice. And I reached down to a Brazilian woman and I'm like, you got to get up. You got to get up. I'm yelling in her ear. And I go, this is the moment. This is a woman. It's, it's a woman, you know, like she, it's not like some 250 pound guy. Like this woman's probably, you know, pretty thin, you know, 110, 120 pounds, like much smaller than me. And I'm like, okay, this is it. I got to help rescue her. And I looked down and I leaned down and I quickly realized I can't move this woman one foot if I want to, like literally, like there's just, there's no possible way that I am picking this person up and carrying them down this mountain. I can't even move 10 feet from here to there, let alone the, you know, 3000 feet or whatever it's going to take to get back to the, the next camp. And a really intense moment, obviously, um, you know, the good, the good, the positive ending of this story is that, um, she was climbing with somebody else. They had taken her oxygen mask off her. She had been some ice been frozen in there. They were trying to figure it out. They got the ice out of there, put her oxygen mask back on her. And fortunately it did revive her and she was able to, to get up. Um, she actually summited the mountain, believe it or not, and got back down safely. Wow. Um, so shake that off for a second. Oh right. my gosh. <laughs> so that has, a, that has a, a happy ending. But the reason I bring that up and preface that with what I said before is that that moment played through my head over and over and over and over again as I entered into the death zone with my wife, right? Like, this is my wife. You know, it's a, you don't want to, I've lost many friends, uh, unfortunately, in the mountains. Um, I perhaps have not faced as much death as you have, but I, I've seen my fair share and it, it, you know, each one of them, you know, ha- hangs heavy on my heart. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it's different when it's your wife, right? And it's different when you're choosing to go up into this place, this place of vulnerability together. And so I'll never forget being at 26,000 feet. And obviously we had talked about this, you know, in the preparation for the climb, but we're finally there. And I say to her, I say, look, like, you know, that I will do everything I possibly can to help you, to support you, to rescue you. But I also got to be honest with you, which is like, we'll be standing right beside each other as we climb this mountain. I'm not going anywhere but we're also kind of on our own up here. Like every step, every footstep, if you break your ankle, if you would ever, like it could be really bad and I might not be able to do, you know, might not be able to save you essentially. And so anyways, your question was, you know, what's that moment? What's that, you know, preparation? What is that about this mountain? Um, I could tell a million stories about Everest, but, you know, if you and your brother up there, you know, when you're 50 years old, whatever the bet is, whoever wins or loses. <laughs> I'm going to leave his um, ass. They're so broken, they're too. Like, yeah, yeah. I can barely move. I'm like, you brought me all the way up here for this? <laughs> oh, both of <laughs> the, them have you, broken you their lower backs. Like both, yeah, both of us have broken back. I have a titanium spine now. Mine has been more than fixed. And he has like a... A nerve stimulator and hit like they're both very broken. Like all the stuff that you do, to, like you do all these, we do against each other. <laughs> yeah. We, like our so, whole, uh, yeah. I mean, what I say is that it, it's real up there, man. Like it is. Oh, it, I have bad is respect. A, I had much respect. A place for that, where you sure. get up to there, and it's you have to sort of have that wherewithal. Your mind is obviously not perfectly lucid because you're not breathing enough oxygen. Um, and there's this point where I, I also say, I mean. I, I have no, no idea if you've experienced this. I imagine you have where like something gets super hard. And at the end of the day, like when you're sitting home and your couch, you're like, oh, I should climb Everest or I should run this marathon or I should, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah. fill in the blank, start this business or whatever that is. At some point it's going to get hard. 
Yeah. And Everest is going to get real hard. That's what I'm talking and there about. There has to be that this moment. deep, this deep place of why inside of yourself. Your answer could be different, but if you were like, "Yeah, this sounded cool because I want to tell my friends about it," like I'm telling you, at 26,000 feet, that's not going to be enough for you to keep yeah, it one. Where, where did that hit you the first time? What, where were you at on the mountain when you're like, "Dude, <laughs> this is not near <laughs> um, as cool as I like, thought." Like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah, yeah. The first time, the first time <laughs> that I actually climbed Everest. I was, it was me and I was climbing with a, a friend of mine, a stripper by the name of Pasang Bodhi. We get up at 26,000 feet. We're going for the summit. I'm trying to set this world record. So we're trying to go as fast as we can. And we get up there at 26,000 feet. And all of a sudden, this massive storm comes out of nowhere. 50, 60 mile per hour winds blowing. It takes us two hours to set up our tent. And we quickly realize that we're not going to be able to go to summit for sure. Not like we're going to be lucky to survive the night. Like there's a lot of people that have been caught out in storms in this camp and never made it down one of the scariest nights of my life. And that following morning, we know we're not climbing up the mountain. We're going to be lucky to descend down the mountain. And we, we do that. We escape the storm and we climb back down, you know, what is it? Seven, 8,000 feet or something like that to a lower two, two camps lower. And I start getting these text messages. I, you know, my family has, I have a sat phone and I've, you know, a few people, in my family, my wife have, you know, connectivity to that. And I get some messages that start being like, wow, like congratulations. Um, cause I had done seven of the nine expeditions for the explorers grand slam previous to this. I only had two mountains left ever since Denali. And they're like, you made it so far. Like, you, you know, you've, you've gone farther in this journey than everyone thought possible. Like, and you got to 26,000 feet on Everest. Like you should be proud of that. And people were kind of letting me off the hook. You know, they were like, you did like, you set this massive goal. You completed 90% of it. Like there's nothing to be, you know, upset about, but you got some bad luck. You got in a storm. And I remember sitting alone in my tent, 22,000 feet. And everyone was expecting me to turn around and go home and just going like, wait a second. Like, this isn't the end of this story. Like if the weather turns good again, like I'm going to do everything I can to give this another shot, to get back up there, to push to the summit. Um, cause it's very rare that you go all the way up that high, spend a night and have the energy and wherewithal to go back up. Um, but that was, that was that moment for me, that why it kicked in and was like, I'm not like, this isn't the end of this story. And, and I eventually did get back up there. I summited and, you know, and summited the final peak and set the world records. But it's, I think you're tested in these moments. We all are on our own journeys, right. Of like, is this the end? Is this all you've got? Or do you have more in the tank? Um, and that certainly was one of those moments for me. That is freaking awesome. So Antarctica, as opposed to you're talking about a mountain, is, is which one? Which one gave it gave you the business, or is a different kind of whipping? Yeah, I mean, you know, my my solo Antarctica crossing, which is perhaps I guess what I'm most well known for, um, was a lot in a lot of ways. I w- I wouldn't say for the rest of my life, but in my adventuring career, my magnum opus. I mean, really, it required every piece of preparation, physical, mental, endurance, grit, et cetera, to get it. You know, I get dropped off on the edge of the frozen continent. Um, it's a me and a, me and a thousand miles of endless Antarctica. Um, I'm trying to do what's called solo and unsupported. So unsupported means no resupplies of food or fuel along the way. So whatever I get dropped off with, that's all I've got. So my sled is 375 pounds, mostly full of 
food and fuel, but even that's not enough food to make it the entire time. So I'm, I'm burning 10,000 calories a day. I'm only eating 7,000. So from day one, I'm on a 3000 calorie deficit. By the end of the thing, I'm a bag of bones. My ribs are sticking out. My hip bones are sticking out. The average temperature is minus 40 degrees. The 56 mile per hour headwinds is common. So it's minus 70 degrees. Um, and people had tried this, you know, numerous people had tried this before me. Someone had died attempting this crossing people have run out of food and had to get evacuated. And there was a lot of people that said like, look, this crossing of Antarctica in this way, uh, is impossible. Uh, you know, it's straight up impossible. It's, it's not going to work. Um, and so not only were there insane, uh, actual stakes, life or death stakes, risks, discomfort, hardship, loneliness, solitude, um, as well as that inner voice amplified by others are saying like, why are you even trying this in the first place? Like, this is impossible. Like this this has never been done. How long were you into when you're like, well, this is a good idea. I, I have my the, my voice says, "How the hell did I get into this one?" Yeah, I, I have that. So, it's ha- it's happening, and it comes out when you're looking around. You're like, I've done enough. You're like, what the <laughs> hell, dude? <laughs> right? You'll you'll appreciate this. You'll appreciate this, Marcus. I uh, so I had a sat phone, as I mentioned, and I would call home to my wife. Um, you know, most nights, and mostly to do like a a medical check. Like she'd ask me some questions to make sure I hadn't like completely lost my mind. Uh, and, there, and there were certainly some moments where I was uh, damn close. I mean, look, I, you, don't, you don't talk or see anybody. It's endless white. It's 24 hours of daylight. So the sun's not even changing. You're, you're in this, like basically this, I call it this white room that's trying to kill you. Yeah. Um, right. Just day. like that. Like being in the sanity room. It's like walking. a torture room. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and there's a reason that solitary confinement is, is like, it's you know, one of the white. highest forms of torture. Yeah. Right? Um, so I, obviously I was real gung-ho about this project, excited, you know, did this bunch of interviews, the New York times and this people are following along. Is, is he going to be the first, you know, whatever. And I don't remember exact day. It was day 30 or something like that. I call my wife and, uh, I'm crying and I'll admit it. There was some, there was actually quite a few tearful days out there, but here's the thing. When you cry and it's minus 30, minus 40 degrees outside, Antarctica doesn't care. You know what it does? The tears, they freeze to your face, which yeah. is like the all-time it's most not even a- feeling. <laughs> <laughs> you start feeling sorry for yourself, you and you cry. got frozen tears on your face. You're like... <laughs> Man, it won't even let me cry out here. Hey, not cry. only that, it freezes it, it to my face. Like, nope. How do you pee? So, so Carefully. So we'll get to that in a second. But the... Uh, so I call my wife. I call my wife on day 30 or something like that. And I'm just, you know, having a day, like I'm just so strung out and I'm asking myself exactly your point. Like, how the hell did I get, why, why am I here? How did I end yeah, up out here? Do like, I did things. this to myself, you know? And I say to my wife, I said, there's going to be a day when I'm back home with you and I'm getting that sort of itchy adventure. You know, I got to do the next thing, whatever. Oh, yeah. And I say, and I say, Promise me, <laughs> promise me that you don't let me convince myself to come back here. Yeah. This is the worst idea. Hand on the Bible, woman. <laughs> don't ever let me get into this again. And I'll tell you what, I, I've certainly had those moments in the last couple of years where I've been like, you know, it might be time to go back out there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> How like, did you even decide to to get there. Did someone bring that up? Like, oh, Colin, you should do this. This is super hard. You know, I I had set some world records previous to that. And those world records have been speed records. One that I mentioned before, a couple other mountaineering records, which is doing things faster than anyone had ever done. 
and, you know, I'm a, a student of adventure, always been fascinated by, you know, Ernest Shackleton and some of these guys who were exploring, you know, a hundred plus years ago when parts of the map, no, no, it's different, right? We have satellite images of the whole globe now, but that wasn't the case a hundred plus years ago, right? It's always been fascinated about that sort of golden age of exploration. But what I was really fascinated about as sort of my next level of pushing my own edges and finding the limits of my own potential was it's one thing to try to do something faster than what somebody's already done before, but there's still a blueprint. Like you can research how they did it, what was their order, maybe how they could improve, et cetera, and do it faster. But what I was really fascinated about in this moment, when I took on this project a few years ago was that it had never been done that it was a world first, you know, it's implicitly a world record, but more importantly, it's a world first. There's no blueprint. There's no guy you can call up and say, well, how did you make it? I could call up a couple of people that tried and failed. They didn't make it. So they didn't have the answer. And so to me, the, the preparation and the curiosity for something that had ne literally never been done before was truly, truly fascinating in that, you know, I could, you know, chart my own path and then, and navigate that completely, uh, on my own. What's Obviously it like a having somebody to talk but to a great reward. I always say every time there's having somebody to talk to is huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I couldn't yeah. imagine that. I mean, what, with anything, there's scenarios when you, you don't even know what you're getting yourself into, but even if you, if you have an idea and you get out there, I mean, you must've been halfway through it. What was one of the one things that, that you weren't expecting that showed up? I mean, like, didn't have a freaking like clue about. Like a polar about. bear showed up. Yeah, I mean, something that's like, what? What was that? I didn't even, I, I wasn't expecting. Did any of those show up? Because those are little little gems, you know. Little, uh, yeah. Little well, God strikes. The, probably, the, the, probably the biggest one is, so I, I announced my project, I, you know. You don't announce it long ahead of time. I've trained for it. I'm prepping for it. My inner circle knows about it, but I'm not like shouting it from the rooftops. And so I'm just about to leave. And then I do an interview uh, with the New York Times and I say, hey, I'm attempting to attempt to be the first person to make this solo unsupported across Antarctica. And literally, I think it might have been the exact same day or within a couple of days, <clears throat> a British special forces military badass dude by the name of Captain Lou Rudd effectively took the exact same interview with the London Telegraph and announced, I'm going to attempt to be the first person to cross Antarctica solo, unsupported, and un unassisted. <sighs> we didn't know about each other. And so before I know it, I'm flying to Antarctica. But here's the thing. Antarctica has so little logistics. There's one guy basically with one plane that can fry you to the edge of the frozen continent where we were yeah, to start. We both called that same guy in the same season, which meant I thought I was racing history a thousand miles by myself. I find myself shoulder to shoulder in a tiny little cargo plane with this badass military dude who's one of the most experienced polar explorers in the world. Now going to start a head to head <laughs> thousand mile that's race a great story across the that's great oh my gosh so y'all um, started together so it, it became a race it became a head-to-head -head race and i had not you know emotionally prepared for that at all we were the plane was driving us to the drop-off point and we decided to make a gentleman's agreement which we're like i was like look it's a thousand mile race we're pulling 375 pound sleds do we really need to start actually right next to each other? And so we made a gentleman's agreement to start one mile apart from each other, but equidistant from the, the first waypoint. Right. And so the plane lands on the ice. I hop out, pull my 375 pound sled out and the plane doesn't even take off. It literally just drives a mile. Oh and I can, you know, gosh. three minutes later, I see the guy jump out. We kind of wave at each other. Um, and, and the race was on, uh, you know, a lot of stories about that, but one that you think you'll appreciate in terms of things that were unexpected, um, well, first of all, he kicked my ass out of the gate. 
like completely, completely kicked my ass, uh, in the first week. Um, you know, most people know that in the end I passed him and, and I ended up being first, but, um, he smoked me on the first week. I passed him on the sixth day On the sixth day. We had sort of this intense exchange with one another. And that was the last time I, I saw him. Um, and it was, you know, really, you know, he was, like I said, a special forces guy. At the time he talked to me, I thought he was like trying to like mess with me in my head. <laughs> like, you know, just like, I was like, I trust him at all. Um, we have ma- maintained a friendship afterwards. Now that the sort of camaraderie has built up and in then. So is the there another one? I mean, is, there gonna, is he dropping another challenge? Yeah. Now he's going to so, be like, I mean, that's kind of a thing. I would think if, if God put you two together to go through that, you would think there's going to be something else. All, all great rivalries are like that. Totally. So, well, the fun, so day, day 40 or something like this, I mentioned, like I said, I have this, this evening check-in call with my wife's only person I talk to. And it's just a few minutes and it's a sat phone. It's not like you're like chit chatting or anything. It's like delayed and crackly, you know, it can communicate like just a little bit, just kind of proof of life kind of thing. It's day 40. I haven't seen Captain Lou since day six, but every single day, like I wake up, I look over my shoulder because Antarctica, <laughs> you can see super far. Right. And like, it's in my head, like, is he passing me or was he, did he pass me when I was asleep? Or, you know, I have no idea. Like where is looking over my shoulder, looking over my shoulder. And I call my wife that night and I say, I got a question. I got to ask you a question, babe. I, I need, I need you to give me the honest answer. And she was like, yeah, sure. What's up? And I was like, is Lou real? Is there a guy out here? Is Lou real? <laughs> oh my gosh. And she's like, you know, for, she, she'll tell me now, like that was the moment she was like, oh shit, he's lost his mind. Yeah, he's yeah. completely losing himself. But here's like, I go, before you answer, I just want to tell you this. Either way, I'm happy. Either way, there is, there either is this special forces British military badass chasing me out here. And it's giving me the where the, the sort of intensity to like get out of my tent and, and keep pushing every single day. Or I go, or I've got one hell of an imagination. And that imagination is still convincing me to get out of my tent and push <laughs> and feel like I'm getting chased or whatever. So I was like, I'm cool with either. But like, I'm just curious. Is there a guy out here chasing me? And she's like, yes, Colin, Lou is real. He's real. All right, just, oh my god! I'm gonna let you in on it, man. When you couldn't see him, he was actually in your sled gear, and you were pulling his ass the whole time. <laughs> exactly. So I could take a break. Exactly. That's messed up. That, that's that's actually idea. what was going down. Good, good plan. If he's one of my SF guys, that's exactly what was happening. <laughs> he didn't want to be seen. He's actually laying right so there. So ha- you passed him by how many days? I mean, like you. In you the won end, I, by... I finished uh, like two and a half days ahead of him. Um, but I did fit. I waited for him at the finish um, because at the you know obviously I was very proud to be the world first, and and you know still I'm very proud of that. But um, you know what happened to me in the last couple of weeks of that expedition is I was pretty much out of food. Um, I was my body was so weak, but I tapped into this place in my mind um, that was just really at peace and powerful and strong. And one of the things that happened to me there was a gratitude for him. And, and, and you mentioned it, uh, Marcus there, you didn't mention no, any great rivalry, you know, both Lou and I, at the end of that, we said to each other, and this is true. And I, I believe this. I was like, I don't think either of us make it to the other side. If the other guy hadn't been there, because there were days when it was so brutal, yeah. minus 70 wind chill, 50 mile per hour winds would have easy be like, I'm going to take a half day. I'm going to take this day off. I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to wait. I'm going to whatever. And in my mind, it was like, but he's coming. What if he's, what if he's badass enough that he doesn't take a break, whatever. And it just shows that like, we actually have the power to have so much impact on each other. Like that competition at its healthiest form yeah, healthy uplifted both of us. And yeah. I would have taken some breaks day seven, day 10, day 15, that by day 50 would have been like, oh. 
well, now I'm actually out of food or, oh, I, I have to be rescued. From so what here. was the, so what was y'all's furthest point uplifted. apart? Do you, do you know that? Say it again. On the route, like his furthest distance from y'all. Apart. I don't know how. Was it, did it ever go over a mile? Did he ever put a mile on the uh, any further like direction? Like GPS of, tracking or something? Yeah, yeah. Did y'all? Oh track? yeah, yeah. We have it fully GPS out. But you mean like how far? Like in yeah, front yeah. Of him, when y'all you know, were separated, y'all couldn't see each other. Obviously, he had to go a different way. Uh, way. Did he go miles away and then come back around? It's so weird. Like it's like so. The only way to navigate is we have compass strapped to our chest. Um, obviously GPS works a little bit of, as you get close to the South pole, GPS gets messed up because it can't tell which direction is North. When you're standing at the South pole, every direction is North. And so it messes with the GPS. Right. Um, and so the only way to navigate is by old school map and compass. Um, and you're trying to take a bearing to a certain point, obviously I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, orienteering. And so you can imagine, you know, that if you close your eyes and you walk, try to walk in a straight line as, as a human, you, you won't walk in a straight line at all. Like if you're close your eyes and walk down a dark hallway, you're going to smack it in the wall pretty quickly. And this white, endless white room, it's just white in every direction with literally no, no ref, frame of reference. And so the only way to walk in a relatively straight line is to stare at this compass needle, like two steps to the right, two steps to the left. I'm constantly going to the right and the left. And so we might be walking one degree different from each other, just subtly, right? Like the most subtle, but it's so vast that one degree to the right or one degree to the left magnified over however many weeks can leave you, you know, 25 oh. miles to either side of each other pretty quickly. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. Did he veer yeah. off at all or he stayed? It's on not track? like he took the wrong turn. We both navigated as best as we could. And we yeah. both ended up going through the South pole, et cetera. But it's not as if it's like a trail and we're just like walking in each other's footsteps. Like it's, it's hard. No, no, that's what words, you were doing. Like y'all were making so the trail. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. Yeah. Y'all were smashing the trail through that, 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 that what everyone's going to follow. And that side yeah. to side, we call it cross track underwater. So if, if you as climber, climbing a mountain does something, the same thing happens to you when you go underwater, the deeper you go. Yeah. It's in its opposite effect. And uh, man, if you get off one degree. It's crazy. One degree at, at distance is when it comes back into play, for sure. Yeah. It's like at first you're like, oh, that's nothing. Yeah, and no big you deal. think about it. Well, one degree Shit. separated over this much difference. It's like you're on the other side other of the side planet, of the freaking, yeah, man. So the problem yeah. with you two talking is Marcus has the wildest imagination out of anyone on this planet. And he'll come up with competitions for you to do that no one has ever done. I'm like, Colin, I got a great idea for us, bro. <laughs> great. Call he, me anytime, man. Oh, he'd be down. texting you like, stuff. okay, I need you to traverse the Amazon <laughs> yeah. jungle I was like, one Either, foot. Especially for points of reference. I'm like, hey, <laughs> I think this might be an ass kicker. I need your advice. I oh value that. Yeah. I mean, anybody who can take a beating and go, keep going back in there, because that's what you show. Yeah. Well, I mean, when bad things happen to us and we refer to them, it's like, oh, man, it was awesome. I, you know, I got whipped so bad. People, that, that, they can't, that doesn't mean, they can't click with that. It doesn't resonate. But you get I it once you that. go through. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no doubt. Once you get switched over, it changes, and then man, it's a it's a great way to live, actually. That's the common denominator of um, people who graduate buds, the SEAL training to become a SEAL, yeah. is the ability to not quit and just push through the shittiest time, no matter what it is. That it's not how strong you are, how fast you are, how tall you are, how short. Like it has nothing. There's no guide it's a, in the heart can you push mentally push through and that's the that's literally the only common denominator between all the guys so mad respect for yeah. you we was like hell man there's some guys down here that'll go that's like just like we were talking about with the word hero where that comes from it's like he'll roll he'll, he'll go 
<laughs> I was like, somebody, one of them guys got to do it. Like, we mm-hmm. need to get over there. Who's willing? <laughs> oh, send Colin, man. That's yeah. a bitch. Yeah, send Colin. <laughs> send Colin. <laughs> I, I got a guy. As a matter of fact, he'll set a record. Well, we could talk to you all day long. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you just tell us about what you're doing now, the 12-hour walk? Give us a little promo about that. Yeah, so um, I've written a couple books. My first book uh, was a New York Times bestseller called The Impossible First, which is all about uh, the full Antarctica crossing. So if people want to find out more about the ins and outs, the details of that full journey, um, including how I went to the bathroom, which I know a question you were asking. Yeah. Uh, it's all in there. Uh, check that book out. Um, my most recent book that just came out <clears throat> uh, a couple months ago is called The 12-Hour Walk. And um, it's really a book about a lot of topics we've been talking about. It's about mindset. Um, it's about how we can overcome these limiting beliefs. I think Marcus even touched on at the beginning that those, those fears that paralyze us, right? And it, it's not just like, oh, I'm afraid of falling off this cliff. It's more like, I'm afraid of what other people are going to say. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of criticism. You know, I'm feeling like I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. You know, I hate being uncomfortable, right? These loops that we have in our brain. And the book, again, it, it, it'll entertain the hell out of you because it's not just uh, some you know academic textbook, but it's told through the lens of crazy adventures I've been on, tough spots I've gotten myself into and overcome. Um, but at its core, it's called the 12-hour walk because it actually has a call to action, a singular, very simple call to action, but powerful and potent, which was derived from my time in Antarctica. I walked every single day for 12 hours. Um, once I passed Lou, actually, that was my commitment to myself that no matter what, no matter the weather, I was going to walk and pull my sled 12 hours a day in these conditions and I made it to the end on literally my last bite of food so if I'd gone one hour less just for one day it you know wouldn't have worked out but what that 12 hours is it's an invitation for people to actually um take a 12-hour walk of their own. So during COVID, you know, locked in my house, I started to get kind of in a weird headspace, you know, kind of full of anxiety out of my routine, you know, worried about my parents, my grandparents, people going to get sick, like whatever. And I just found myself in a negative spot in my head, which I generally don't find myself in too many of those negative spots, particularly of all the work I've done on my mind and my mindset. And the reset that I needed was simple. I walked out my front door on the Oregon coast, put my phone on airplane mode and went on a walk by myself in the stillness and silence. And it was a very, very powerful reset to tap back into what I believe the inner strength that we all have. Now, when I completed that 12 hour walk, I thought to myself, yeah, like whatever. I'm the guy who walked across Antarctica. Like that worked well for me. I didn't think a lot of people would take me up on it, but I started suggesting it to all sorts of different people. And before I knew it, you know, I had dozens and dozens of people in my inner circle, everyone from my 77 year old mother-in-law, she did her 12 hour walk. And what that looked like for her, I said, I don't care how far you go. It's not about distance. It's about taking a day alone by yourself in silence. Now, someone like Marcus, obviously you've pushed yourself and your body and your mind in so many unique ways, but in our modern society, in our culture, it's a shame, but people are so afraid to be outside of their comfort zone. They're afraid to be off their phone for 15 minutes and be a little bit bored. They're afraid, you know, to push themselves in some sort of, you know, uh, challenging way. You know, I, I start, I've started to think about life on a scale of what I call the one to 10 scale. So you got one being the lowest, lowest moments you'll ever experience in life. You know, uh, losing a friend in a tragedy, maybe those frozen tears that I told you about in Antarctica were some one moments for me, right? Hardship, heartbreak. We know what that feels like. And then tens are our highest highs. You know, tens are uh, the birth of your first child, falling in love, you know, some massive achievement that you worked super hard toward. For me, crossing Antarctica and getting to the end of it and know that I did this, that I worked my ass off to become the first person in history to do this. Those are the tens. And here's the thing. Everyone's like, I want tens, man. I want as many tens as I possibly can have in my life. But when I think about my tens, I realize that I didn't get there in spite of my ones. 
I got there because of my ones. Every single one of my tens are connected to ones. I didn't get to the other side of Antarctica without having to feel the ones, the hardship, the hunger, the starvation, the challenge. That set up the 10. But here's the thing. In our modern society, most people are stuck in what I call the zone of comfortable complacency between four and six, right? It's like they go to a job. They don't love it. They don't hate it. It's just like a five every day. Five, five, five. Or they're in a relationship like... They don't, you know, it's not like it's toxic. It's not abusive or anything like that. It's just fine. It's like on autopilot, you're co-parenting, you're cohabitating. It's just like, whatever, five, 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 five. And here's the thing. You string up 365 fives in a row throughout your year. Where are you left with? You're left with deep dissatisfaction, lack of fulfillment. You are that guy at the elevator in the Manhattan penthouse going, man, I wish I had asked myself what my Everest is. But if you take, if you're so afraid of experiencing ones, if you're so afraid of experiencing any discomfort or doing things that are different from your norm, you take the ones off the table, guess what? You take the tens off the table as well. And so the 12 hour walk is an invitation. It is free. It is out your front door. It is something that you can literally do tomorrow. I have a website. You can sign up to do it. It's free. There's an app that tracks you, whatever. But here's the thing taking a single day to break from your routine, to go inward, to investigate what your Everest is, and more than anything, push your body in a mind that is unique and different for you. It's amazing what that can potential and open up. I love that. Amen, brother. Yeah. That's, Thank you for that. Thanks again that. for doing this, man. Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Um, okay. Yeah, you tell us the website where people can get the book, all those fun things yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check out uh, 12 Hour Walk. You can buy it wherever books are sold, you know, Amazon, your local bookstore, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, my website uh, for the 12 Hour Walk is just 12hourwalk.com. That's the numbers, one, two, 12hourwalk.com. Pick a date, put it on your calendar, sign up, actually commit to it. Um, that makes a big difference. And you're actually completing that goal. We've already had, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people all over the world complete the 12 hour walk, you know, 40 different countries, I think, at this point, every different continent. And like I said, people from all different backgrounds, not this isn't just for athletes, this is for people. People, literally, I don't care if you go for one mile or 50 miles. This is about a deep journey into your mind, body, and soul. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's amazing to see the impact. So check it out, 12hourwalk.com. Check out the book. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it and like it. Um, and come say hello to me on social media. I'm at, at Colin O'Brady on Instagram. I love it. Thank you. Thanks, brother. We'll we can talk touch, to you man. all day. Yeah. yeah. And all good right. luck with the baby making. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. <so much. laughs> hey, that's hey, the next that's, hey, hey, New Everest. New Ant and New Antarctica. Bo that's both right. those. Yeah, that's right. And this is going to be the best part. And it's, and I, I don't know if I have the vocabulary. We don't have to put this in here to articulate this to you, man. But so those accomplishments and those, those, and those fights that we got in before kids, like, you know, it's like, man, yeah, that was for a reason. It wasn't for a reason. When those kids drop on the ground, it, it kind of, and you, you'll understand why. Hmm. For whatever that means for you, it's something. Uh, for me, it was I had to go through what I had to go through when I met her and then those kids. So can't wait to see what they are. I can't wait to see what yours turn into either, brother. We're, we're awesome, praying man. for well, you, I man. I appreciate you guys. Such a pleasure to be here with all of you. And thanks so much. We'll be in touch. You yeah. guys, Colin. Appreciate Bye. it, man. All right. Bye.